Star Wars fun for everyone, especially me. I like the sound of that. Hey everybody, this is Star Wars fun for everyone, especially me. I am your host, Tom Sutton. Now, uh, this won't affect 98% of the world, but there were a lot of people looking forward to Star Wars Celebration this week. Um, of course, that's not happening due to uh, the situation, all in caps. Um, so I thought, you know, it might be a nice time to look back at the one time that I was lucky enough to go to a Star Wars Celebration. Now, this happens to coincide with the fact that uh, my good friend Miki Komine um, happened to stumble upon some photos that I actually sent her from back then in 2008 when Star Wars uh, Celebration Japan happened. Um, apparently, she just was interested and said, send me some photos, so I did. And they stuck around in her inbox, basically. Um, now, there's one photo from there where I'm sitting on uh, Jabba's throne with Jabba and Salacious Crumb. But all the rest of them, like I guess I have them stored somewhere, but... I hadn't seen these photos in at least a decade. So, um, man, that was fun. That was super fun to uh, to see those photos and look back a bit because, um, well, uh, let, me, let me do some re reminiscing here. Um, at the time, so this is 2008, um, fandom was nothing like uh, the way we know it now. I mean... I knew what I felt about Star Wars, and I had a few friends that I could talk about it with. Uh, one was James Miyazawa, James Miyazawa but he uh, he had moved away from Japan at that point. Um, the other was my friend Miki. Um, I met her through the metal scene, um, but as soon as we found out that we were both Star Wars fanatics, we became really good friends. And um, I guess timing-wise, you know, the prequel trilogy was over. And it was, A, like I didn't feel part of any wider fan community at all. Um, I was, I think, you know, I, I, I had heard a Star Wars podcast or two, the Force cast and stuff. Um, I had, you know, I was taking part in the... Um, Rebel Scum forums at the time, I believe. But other than that, like, I didn't feel, like, engaged in Star Wars fandom, really. Um, it just felt like I would, you know, enjoy what I enjoyed, but I, uh, it didn't occur to me that I might want to enjoy it with other people. <laughs> um, much like this podcast most of the time. Oh! Anyway, um... Mickey heard about it, that it was happening, and I mean, it's utterly unimaginable now, but I was not enthusiastic about going at all. I didn't really want to go. Um, I guess that I just felt like uh, like hanging out with in an auditorium with a bunch of Star Wars nerds, like... I don't know. I guess that sounds be okay. I guess, but I think that this was around the time time that the um, the company I worked for went bankrupt, and I 
I wasn't working full time. I was like, I had some private students, I think, but I wasn't teaching full time anymore. And I, I basically wasn't really in the mood to spend tons of money on unnecessary stuff. But um, I remember she was like, I'm going, I'm booking, I'm booking like the, you know, the, the three day ticket for myself. And I'm going to book for you too. You can pay me back whenever you can. So I said, all right, if you're going to put up the money, then uh, yeah, we can do it. Mickey was right. It turned into three of the best days I've ever had in my entire life. Um, I think it's weird. Like, I think when you see photos of uh, people in costume at events and uh, conventions and stuff, you go like, yeah, that looks really cool. But there's something about walking along and seeing like screen accurate characters walking or just walking around that it just puts you in that world somehow. And I, it was so fun just to see like stormtroopers and Boba Fett and, and whatever, just walking around it. It was kind of thrilling. And, um, you know, they had a lot of, um, I think. I believe it's a group out of Belgium who are like really well known for what they do with the um with the like large large scale props that they bring. Um a few things that were there that you could uh check out and take photos of were like um speeder bike from Return of the Jedi, um snow speeder, uh dewback, Jabba, as I mentioned. Um I think there was even like a an almost like one to one scale um, ATST, so that kind of stuff was cool enough. Uh, what the, the other the other thing that was cool was that that was just it was on the eve of the release of the Clone Wars movie. So I believe we I think we were might have been among the first to actually see footage from the Clone Wars. I remember thinking, yeah, this looks cool. I was into it, and I remember going to the movie with her, and we had a good time. Like looking back, back you go like, ah. It's hardly the um, the pinnacle of the uh, Clone Wars TV series that that uh, quote unquote film, uh, but yeah, it was um, it was exciting to see that. Now um, on top of that, we got um, I, I remember a panel with Mark Hamill. Such a fun thing to sit there and listen to him talk. Something that was really funny that because it was in Japan, he was of course being interviewed, and then they had a translator on the mic who would then translate what he said into Japanese. And um, what was really weird is like the interviewer would ask him a question, and then he would uh, answer, and of course he would say something funny because it's Mark Hamill. And then I and about fourteen other people in the entire auditorium would laugh. And then the translator would um, translate what he said, and then the other five thousand people would laugh. <laughs> it, was a, it was a really weird experience, but it was cool. Um, other big time highlights were um, again Mickey kind of convinced me uh, to go for this, but um, you know there were actors um, from the films making themselves available for autographs, but also for photos. Now, uh, interestingly, the photos were significantly cheaper than the autographs. Now, I guess that is to do with the fact that autogra like autographed memorabilia is um, valuable. 
on the second-hand market, whereas a photo of me with uh, <laughs> someone maybe less valuable. Um, so the fun thing was that yeah, she she uh, she suggested we go for it, get get a couple of photos. So what we went, what we went for were um, one of them was called the two Darths, and what it was was uh, David Prowse and Ray Park. So um, yeah, we got our photos with we got yeah the two of us we got photos with um, with those with the two Darths. It was funny. Um, I remember like everything seemed to be it seemed to be late, like the line wasn't moving, and we found out that. Probably due to jet lag, Ray Park had fallen fallen asleep in his hotel room and uh, was late. But uh, that was really, really cool. And um, the other photo we got, which is totally mental. I w Next time I'm back in Australia, I'm going to dig it out and uh, scan it so that I have it digitally. But um, it was none other than Mark Hamill himself. And uh, <laughs> the photo is really weird because it's, it's it's fun. It's uh, it's him and myself and Mickey holding her Luke Skywalker figure in the air, <laughs> which is I don't know, just a kind of weird. I don't know. It's a fun photo. And what was what the other cool thing that happened was um. So uh, Mark actually did some voice work on a TV show called Metalocalypse, and um. Of course, the star of that show is a heavy metal band called um, Death Clock. And um, I, th I seem to remember that as we were getting our photo taken, uh, I threw the metal horns and sh shouted, Death Clock! <laughs> and uh, Mark Hamill goes without missing a beat. He goes... Is that a gang sign? <laughs> oh, what a what a champion! Yeah, what a great thing! I gotta dig those two photos out when I'm when I'm about. You know what else? Because so we got the you know the Jedi pass or whatever that gave you three days, the whole three days of the convention, and um, and a part of that package was that each pers each person got a little. Um, kind of uh, presentation box with a piece of genuine Ewok fur in it with a certificate of authenticity, which is pretty cool. <laughs> it was pretty cool. Yep, so I've still got that. Another cool thing was like just it, he and his wife were just walking around. It was Tim Rose who uh, played Admiral Akbar? I think he was believe he was the puppeteer that did Salacious Crumb, or he did the voice. Um, um, I can't remember right now. But he was a total charm factory. Like he had a whole, you know, a whole bunch of people standing around him just kind of asking him questions. And he was super nice. And his wife too, they were super lovely. Wow, isn't that cool? I met Admiral Akbar. It's fun to think back on. And of course, there were all the you know the the toys and collectibles and all that stuff that we could uh, look at. That was nice. But I got to say, I think the thing that sticks in my head really about why I enjoyed it so much was, I mean, all that stuff. You put it together, and it's it's good times. But something that I really really enjoyed 
was the fact that now, like, if you are a Star Wars maniac like myself, you will have experience where, like, you can talk to Star Wars to probably a number of people in your circle of friends, but most of them have kind of a um, a, a limit for how much Star Wars talk they can handle. Um, the fun thing about being at a Star Wars convention is everybody is there for Star Wars and there's no time limit. Guess what? If you are at a Star Wars convention and you want to talk about Star Wars, you can talk about Star Wars. It's um it's this wonderfully freeing experience actually. So um yeah, it's man, it was a great time and I I see I seem to remember um like as the um as the you know as things were winding down we were getting to the end of the third day um and uh yeah we started to um kind of make our last rounds of the floor get ready to leave i just remember feeling pretty sad <laughs> that it was all over um unfortunately i've never been in the kind of like financial finance in a financial position to fly um somewhere else to go to um another star wars celebration but hopefully i can do that again sometime great memories now as i like to do sometimes uh, i come across fun stuff in the star wars books i'm reading and i like to share them with the folks out there uh i'm gonna share a few fun points from um, the Making of the Empire Strikes Back by the amazing J.W. Rinsler. Um, I think that, you know, considering how important uh, Ivan Kirshner and um, Lawrence Kasdan were to the film, I think sometimes it gets a little bit murky as to who came up with what. Um so it's just fun sometimes when I uh, come across stuff that uh, that uh, kind of clarifies that. Um, so uh, when it comes to Yoda and Yoda's backwards way of speaking, turns out that was George. So I'd like to read a little bit from the book about uh, Yoda and his backwards way of speaking. All right, here we go from the book. Other second draft, uh, second draft innovations included naming the snow monster a wampa and giving Yoda a particular speech pattern. Quote, Yoda was one of those where I didn't use the list of names, says Lucas. I thought, okay, I've got this character who is kind of like a little Dalai Lama, so I came up with an eastern-sounding name. Then I felt his dialogue and cadence should be unique. In Star Wars, I had to write Han's dialogue so it would explain what Chewie was saying, which was hard to do. I tried to give people accents and subtitles, but when the second film came, film came along, I thought, an accent isn't going to work here. I've got to come up with something even more dramatic, because he's such a weird alien character. I had to come up with something that's not a foreign language, not an accent, but somewhere in between those two things. That's how I started Yoda's backward style. Mm, how about that? So, Uncle George, nice work on the backwards speaking from Yoda. All right. Um, 
there's also a little bit of an interesting thing here about the convention of uh, numbering numbering the um, the films in the saga. Um, apparently, they they really wanted to do the these these you know the episode four or even five. Apparently, that was also an option for the first Star Wars film, but um, they were a bit afraid that people would not really get it. So um, this is what Gary Kurtz said. We got cold feet at the last minute and took that out. Fox was worried, and to be perfectly honest, we were worried too. People wouldn't have understood what all that meant. They would have been asking themselves, what happened to the first three? Yep. So that was interesting. All right. I've got another thing that I wanted to share, except that I've lost my bookmark. Here we go. My bookmark is a single square of toilet paper. So, Elaine Benning, guess what? I do now have a square to spare. All right, the interesting part from here was... um, Again, you know, um, Lawrence Kasdan wrote this, basically wrote the script for Empire based on uh, George's um, outline or his first draft, I suppose. Um, so again, it's a little bit, uh, you know, I, I wonder sometimes who came up with what. Um, and um, of course, one of the most iconic lines from The Empire Strikes Back was Yoda's do or do not, there is no try. Now, whether or not uh, George actually wrote those lines in, in precisely those words, I'm not sure. But what made me kind of happy to see was that um, George kind of lived by this. All right. So he talks in the book, um, he's talking a little bit about how Lee Brackett, uh, they gave her a script credit um, because they... They liked her and were very, you know, very sad that she passed away. But in fact, almost nothing that she wrote actually remained in the script. But uh, here we go. From the book. In general, Kasdan had tightened up the dialogue in some scenes and expanded it in others where the action had taken place too quickly for the characters to react. Much of the dialogue was brand new and snapped with wit. Particular Yoda's scenes and words. Is that supposed to be in particular? Hmm. Anyway, which are much more to the point, including try not, do. Ah, okay, so maybe, um, maybe Lawrence Kasdan did reword that line. Let's hear what George Lucas has to say about it. The philosophy of doing putting your all into something instead of just trying is a philosophy that goes through all of my movies, says Lucas. It's something I encountered first when I was in college where a lot of the students would give up. For me, it was all about making movies, even if it was something that was completely impossible. There was not even a remote consideration that it could actually happen, but I put my mind to it and never... never even considered any other possibility. And it was through that that I eventually did manage to do the impossible. Wow. 
I love that. I just think um, I have been reflecting recently on how just impossible the uh, the production on um, on uh, episode four was, and how what what a miracle it is that they finished the film and not only finished the film but made one of the greatest films in the history of uh, of motion pictures. Um, but to hear that. Um, that amazing line from Yoda um, really ties in with, uh, you know, part of George's philosophy and that he actually really applied that in his career as a filmmaker and in getting Star Wars made. He did do the impossible. Um, and it was uh, partly down to his um, his way of approaching things which is total commitment and not even entertaining the idea that it might not be possible so that was great too all right let's jump back into the rise of skywalker we are i think we've just seen um the i am the spy section we're about to see poor general hux report back to general pride about the escape of the prisoners and as we all know, this is going to go less than well for him. Let's get it on. Oh, my God. General Pride's face is priceless in this scene. I love it. Bam. I just, oh, that blaster shot is excellent. We get a beautiful shot of the Falcon honing through hyperspace. I was talking to uh, my friend Peter, who I met through my wonderful friend Amanda, um, about Chewbacca and the you know reproduction of, of Chewbacca's of Chewbacca's outfit throughout the years, and um, yeah, we agreed that in these uh, in the Disney era they've really nailed the look of Chewie. Uh, he, they did not nail the look of Chewie in episode three, that's for sure. And um, man, what an improvement uh, we've seen in the last few movies. He looks fantastic. We've got a nice scene here where um, Ray's talking about going and killing the Emperor, and Finn is very concerned about her. Ah, here we've got Palpatine talking to Kylo Ren. Kyle, the red in Kylo Ren's helmet, glowing like liquid magma. It's um, fantastic. I, oh, beautiful. I mean, I just think this this film looks like a million. <laughs> I was going to say this film looks like a million bucks. You know what it looks like? About two million. Tw uh, sorry, two hundred million bucks, which is about how much it costs to make. I'm assuming. All right. I'm going to pause this for a second. Okay, we see the Falcon crash land on Kefbir. Now, they ha we're talking about that they're having a problem with the landing gear, but we've all seen enough Star Wars films to know that, that the Falcon didn't really need to crash land here. Could have just landed. You know, even if the landing gear was not working, they didn't have to, like, smoosh themselves into this hill. That's a bit goofy. Uh... Small complaint, but I love that. I like how it pans up and you see them walking up over that hill. 
And I mean, we saw this stuff in trailers where they, they come over the hill and they are faced by this incredible shot of uh, the crumbling shell of uh, this big chunk of the second Death Star with these huge waves rolling. Ah! Super... Just super stylish, super dramatic and... It looks great. This dagger bit, yeah, again, I don't know. Like, I think if I frame it in a Indiana Jones slash Goonies kind of way, I like it, actually. I don't dislike it. And this is one of those kind of way things where you can kind of... Uh, so, yep, the force is guiding her, you know, and then uh, it's not ridiculous. But I, it's also cool when she like lines up the knife, and then you get, you can see that crushed and leaning tower that we're so familiar with from uh, Return of the Jedi. Super good. All right, space horses. Not a fan, to be honest. I just. This is my rule for Star Wars creatures. They have to be kind of ugly and lumpy for them to feel like Star Wars for me. Like a dewback, not so different from a space horse, right? But it's a giant ugly lizard. Therefore, it feels like Star Wars. Tauntaun, also not a million miles from this space horse. But it's this weird lizard kangaroo thing with fur. And it smells bad on the inside and the outside. You know what I mean? Like, it's goofy looking somehow. And that, that makes it look like Star Wars. But these space horses really just look like horses with a bit of, you know, with a couple of horns on them. Mm. To me, that doesn't, that doesn't spell Star Wars. Sorry. Nice little C-3PO gag here. Did we ever find his volume control? All right. This scene between Finn and uh, Janna, it's weird. It's funny. Like, on the surface, it shouldn't really affect me that much, but I find it very emotional. And I, th I know that there's. it's a bit of a wasted opportunity for Finn. Like, it's his kind of role in the end battle, it's all right. But imagine if he had, yeah, like, infiltrated... The first order somehow and had um, drummed up a mutiny and had managed to you know drum up you know a couple thousand uh stormtroopers who didn't want to be didn't want to fight for the first order anymore that would have been pretty cool and it would have been such a satisfying end to his um his arc since you know we all know where he came from mm. but i i really like janna um, I think she's a great actress. This woman who plays her, what's that? Uh, something rather Aki. Yep, she's good. Um, yeah, I mean, there are quite a lot of things in this movie that you wish, you know, had had a bit more time to be expanded upon, but, um, I still really like that, that scene. We are, yeah, this is all right, all this stuff. I don't know where they're like, you know, Ray's going out by herself. Once, 
I mean, once you once you start focusing on Ray out on the water and then climbing on the death the second Death Star, then I, I love it. But um, I don't know this uh, this kind of like arguing between uh, Finn and Poe. It's good, I guess, but it feels a little bit manufactured, you know, for the sake of dra drama. But these waves, I mean, this is ILM at full stretch. I mean, seriously. It's not a single thing about this water that looks fake to me. It's, and just the, the way that Daisy Ridley is working her ass off in that skimmer and the way that just every, like, it really looks like there's water kicking up at the camera and stuff. ILM, take a bow. Now, oh, but I, I like the, the way that shot is framed. It's, I think it's a very Star Wars thing to put um, small figures in large, large expanses of, you know, picturesque um, landscape. Oh, it's such a lonely shot there of Poe. But I love this. This looks like something like straight out of a, a piece of concept art, which I'm guessing it probably was. You get this beautiful shot down through the wreckage at the skimmer. That shot of Finn looking through the macro binoculars has been ruined forever by that meme that put eyeballs in his no nostrils. <laughs> Sorry, it just is. All right, very cool shots of the inside of the ruined second Death Star. Wow, this is a really cool. Nice to see that some rotting TIE fighters and just piles of rusty debris cool uh, kind of callback to her uh, her beginnings as a scavenger whose job it was to climb through these wreckages um, again I think these films do such a good job of making things feel really tactile like it just everything feels very real and ah look at these like yeah Stormtrooper uniforms scattered around. I love it. Just water everywhere. All these wires and stuff. Looks super cool. All right. Here's the plan. We're going to go through this cool segment. Man, anytime Ray is in the picture, I'm having a good time with this movie, basically. I mean... Ah, I love the plaintive kind of of the soundtrack here, recalling um, the, the final moments of Vader's life not far from this throne room. Um, it was funny, like, how at first, like, it didn't make sense in a way. You're like, that's not, but this, that's not how the room looked. And then I remember I, I read that no, that's, that whole platform has collapsed. So that's why the room looks different. You're not on that platform. You're on. You're basically on the level underneath it where Vader and Luke were kind of facing, facing off against each other. Um, that's why you don't really notice this wall where this, um, this, I don't know, storage room or whatever it is, is. Um, 
yeah, I like the dark gray thing. It's cool. I'm not sure that like still spatially, it seems like this is a lot of stuff to go in a, in a wall cavity. Because, yeah, I don't know. But dark gray is cool. I mean, damn, that was shocking as hell when we saw that in the trailer. Remember that? There were a lot of discussions about um, her and that lightsaber. Ah, don't be afraid of who you are. Nice. Ray fighting herself. And I think this is a great place to pause it because our dude Kylo Ren has just turned up and that's going to be a whole segment. Big, chunky, flavorsome, nutritious chunks of Star Wars are on their way there. All right, folks, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, we have to assume that it won't be that long till um, we get a trailer for season two of The Mandalorian. So we will, of course, jump on and talk about that when that comes out. But until then, everybody take care. Thank you for listening. My name is Tom Sutton, and this is Star Wars Fun for Everyone, especially me. Ah!